from News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. With the decline of daily newspapers and the proliferation of social media, there's a real question of where one can go to find unbiased, fact-based reporting on public policy issues. And if public policy debates are even being covered, who's watching the political henhouse? In today's program, we'll talk to the leaders of some important nonpartisan state watchdogs, the California legislative analyst Greg Pettick and Pedro Nava, the chairperson with the Little Hoover Commission. We'll then get the take of longtime political observer and columnist Dan Walters with Cal Matters, as well as Laurel Rosenhall, the Sacramento bureau chief for the LA Times, about how influential these watchdogs really are when it comes to speaking truth to power. And with the decline in local news outlets, where does one turn to find nonpartisan fact-based reporting of local government and local elected officials? What is the future state of local news? And are we about to enter an age of more or less transparency and public awareness of what is happening in local politics? We'll ask Danielle Bergstrom. She's the managing editor of Fresno Land, a nonprofit newsroom that describes itself as by, for, and with all residents of the central San Joaquin Valley. We'll also talk with Lois Henry, the CEO and editor of SJV Water, an independent nonprofit news site dedicated to covering water in the San Joaquin Valley. And finally, we'll talk to Jim Boren, the former longtime executive editor with the Fresno Bee and current executive director of the Institute for Media and the Public Trust at Fresno State. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Politicians of both sides, uh, of both stripes, often argue about controlling government fraud, waste, and abuse. Few realize, however, there actually are three state watchdog agencies whose sole purpose is to make sure California government is responsive to its citizens. One of the most influential is the California Legislative Analyst Office, or the LAO. It was established in 1941 to, quote, ascertain facts and make recommendations concerning the state budget with a view to reducing the cost of and securing greater efficiencies, unquote. In short, the LEO is charged with calling it as they see it, or put another way, speaking truth to power. Our guest is the current legislative analyst, uh, Gabriel Pettick. He's only the sixth person to hold that position in the last 80 plus years. Welcome to the Matty Report. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. So listen, you know, your office is widely considered one of the most influential at the state capitol, uh, but people on the state may not be aware of actually uh, who you are and what you do. So can you describe the work of the legislative analyst office? Yes, sure. Uh, you know, basically, we are the state's we are the state legislature's nonpartisan fiscal and policy advisor. As you noted, we were created in 1941. It was through a joint rule of the Assembly and the State Senate to provide the legislature with its own analytical unit, 
essentially to serve as a counterweight to the governor's Department of Finance. And so even though you fast forward now 82 years later and there are many different legislative staff entities out there, uh, I think we continue to differentiate ourselves as fiscal and budget experts for the legislature. There, there, there are two things you said, though, that I want to kind of highlight. One is you're nonpartisan. Even though it says legislative analyst office, you're a nonpartisan office. The second thing I want to highlight is that you are often the counterweight to the Department of Finance. And, and as previous, I don't think you've told me this, but previous uh, legislative analysts have said, well, you know, we're more accurate on the budget than the Department of Finance. So there's always this back and forth between who has the most accurate assessment of the budget, but you got a pretty good record. Um, <laughs> let me ask Let me ask you this. Uh, the LAO, it sounds a lot like the Federal Congressional Budget Office. How are they different? Yeah, both offices do provide nonpartisan analysis and assessments to our respective bosses, the Congress for the CBO and the legislature for us. Probably the biggest difference, though, between the two offices is that um, part of our statutory charge is to make fiscal and policy recommendations, whereas the CBO does not. It stops at the assessment stage. And, um, you know, making recommendations can be challenging work, but it does wind up being some of our best action oriented advi uh, advice. Uh, and that's because our recommendations always flow from uh, data and analysis which I expect is especially valuable to our bosses in the legislature as they navigate the you know, very partisan world in which we all live. Yeah, the truth of the matter is, I mean, I do a lot of work as, as an arbitrator, as a judge, and, and judging matters. Of course, whenever I write a decision, the winning party thinks it's pure genius. Of course, the losing party has a different interpretation of that decision. So I'm sure some of your analysis, even though it's fact-based, um, you know, it, it, it depends on, on who's getting the better side of those facts, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. You're, you're best known. The LAO is best known for their work on the budget. Um, how would you describe your role in the state budget process? Yeah, our budget work is really a key function of the office. It ranges from uh, development of our fiscal outlook to the independent revenue estimates that we provide uh, to also careful review of all of the governor's proposals and contained in the in the governor's budget in January and also the May revision. Uh, and as we go through those proposals and identify any shortcomings, uh, typically we'll offer uh, fiscal and policy alternatives for the legislature to consider as they are deliberating their budget options. Um, also, I, I must mention that it, it may be lesser known, but even after the budget is adopted, we continue to work on safeguarding the legislature's prerogatives and intent by assisting it with carrying out various budget control mechanisms. So. A good example here is if the state receives unanticipated federal funds after the budget has been adopted, we will review the administration's proposed allocation of those funds to ensure that they comport with you know, both the letter and the spirit of the legislature's previously articulated intent. Yeah. And one, one of the things you, know, you also make sure the legislature, when they propose something, is it working, right? And you go back and you take right. a look at that. It's interesting. I just want to make a note. Your, your, your predecessor, one time I was interviewing him, Mac Taylor, great guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I quoted something out of a Sacramento Bee that was meant as a compliment. I don't know if he took it as a compliment. I said, you know, they refer to you as the skunk uh, at the annual budget party. It was meant <laughs> as a compliment. I don't know if he took it that way. Um, anyway, so, um, you know, do any particular pieces of legislation or budget issues come to mind when you think that are particularly good examples mm -hmm. uh, when your analysis has really had an impact? I think, so. yeah, if I can, I'll take a recent example, which is that in the last few years, the state has become much more engaged and, you know, directly engaged 
on issues around mental health, behavioral health, and homelessness, all of which have complex interactions and pose major you know, policy challenges for the state. Then this past spring, the governor put forward uh, a set of proposals to reform how the state will deploy its Mental Health Services Act resources. This comes from a 2004 voter-approved tax. As we assess this package for the legislature, we noted that the proposal was quite prescriptive in how these funds would be spent. Uh, and as a result, it would reduce county flexibility and it would also uh, introduce a new oversight mechanism, all, all of this in ways that we thought could differ from what the uh, legislature's priorities were. Yeah, that's an important, and, important function for you guys to have. Yeah, um, obviously, yeah. we're, we're, we're running up against the, the oh, deadline yeah. here, so I apologize, but I wanted to give people an idea of what the LAO does. You do some terrific work, and I really encourage people to take a look at your website, laoca.ca.gov to see some of those reports. I want to thank Gabe Paddock, who's the current LAO for California, for joining us. Up next, we're going to talk to the person who provides an independent assessment of financial and operational activities of state government, the state auditor. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. Established in 1962, California's Little Hoover Commission's mission is to, quote, investigate state government operations and, through reports, recommendations, and legislative proposals, promote efficiency, economy, and improve service, unquote. We're fortunate to have the chairperson of Little Hoover Commission, Pedro Nava, with us today. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure to be here. So listen, first off, who makes up the commission? How are the commissioners selected? Well, there are 13 commissioners, and we are appointed uh, by uh, the governor, by the Speaker of the Assembly, and by the uh, pro tem from the Senate. And the commission is unique. It is the only uh, permanent a government watchdog of its type in the entire country. Uh, we're created by statute, and we are required to be uh, composed of members of political parties in such a way that no one has any particular advantage. So, for example, I'm a Democrat, I'm the chair. The vice chair has to be a member of the opposite party. So how does the commission's role differ from state and private sector bodies that analyze or review state programs? Well, I think one of the advantages we have is that uh, we are uh, uh, completely independent. Uh, we do have a budget that is authorized by the legislature, but with respect to the membership of the commission, the topics that we investigate and the work that we do, uh, we are independent. We uh, have the responsibility to evaluate the executive branch operations, so that includes the governor uh, and includes all of the state agencies as well. You know, Little Hoover Commission uh, analyzes, as you said, a wide variety of public policy issues. For example, you've looked into the issue of affordable housing. What did you find there? Well, we found that, that it's um, a very complicated uh, sort of process. Um, a lot of the cost of housing has to do with the sorts of regulations that are uh, created at the uh, local level, or it's the supervisors and city councils. Uh, in addition to that, the uh, cost of construction it, uh, is expensive in California. And there are a number of things that can be done to improve uh, and make opportunity more available for people. And our report touches upon that and we make some recommendations. Yeah, so you, you kind of touched on another thing and that is another report you did. You do a lot of reports, uh, but a report you did on the study of regional economic development. What were your key findings there? Well, it was it, the key findings for uh, regional economic development is that the state of California uh, has up until recently not done a very good job of making sure that resources are allocated appropriately uh, between what we call coastal California and inland California. And so uh, coastal California has done 
very well economically uh, as compared to inland California, uh, which has lagged uh, uh, far behind. But there have been some steps taken by the Newsom administration and some funding set up that is uh, designed to address that disparity. You know, an another example of what you're doing, and you don't shy away from the tough issues. You're now studying CEQA, uh, the California Environmental Quality Act, um, that you note has, quote, been the center of polarized debate and controversy, unquote. So what's the focus of, of this study? Well, the, the, the work that we're doing with CEQA, I think, is going to go a long way towards um, actually illuminating facts and separating that from emotion. Um, uh, what I, my opinion in looking at the issue is there's a whole lot of headline uh, uh, grabbing with respect to CEQA. Um, uh, my sense is that CEQA gets blamed for every delay and uh, every impediment, uh, whether it had anything to do with it or not. And so our, we've had five hearings, so we've been able to devote a substantial amount of time. We are in the process of uh, preparing the draft uh, report with recommendations that the full commission will examine very soon. You know, it, it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, CEQA does, you know, there are critics that say, hey, listen, uh, it impacts uh, housing construction, infill development, addressing climate change. I mean, there, is, there are some critics of CEQA on the other side, and maybe there is, some people say maybe there is a, a way you can modify that, but it seems to be the third rail when it comes to environmental politics. Um, let me ask you this, we only got about 30 seconds left, but I'm gonna ask you about commissions uh, supporting legislation to help implement some of your report's recommendations. Can you provide any examples where that's happened? Any proposed bills that have come into law? Yeah, quite frankly, uh, for the year of 2021 to 2022, we had 12 bills uh, that were signed uh, into law. Um, so we had 16 issue briefs that we uh, put out. We met 37 times. And a, a responsibility that we have as commissioners is when we make recommendations that are then adopted by members of the legislature, we are very actively pursuing support for those. We write letters, we attend hearings, and we act as advocates for the recommendations to be made in the law. Yeah, I know. Actually, I want to recommend our audience to kind of check out your reports at littlehoovercommission.gov. Um, if you want more information, find it at littlehoovercommission.gov. It's actually lhc.ca.gov. I want to thank Pedro Nava, the chair of the California Little Hoover Commission, for being here. Moving on to California's watchdogs, when we come back, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, the press has been referred to as the fourth estate, alongside the three branches of government, the legislative, executive, and judicial. Given these hyper-partisan times, when people can increasingly choose to get their news from sources that reinforce their own preconceived biases, does the public still trust the traditional press to play the role of watchdog? Our guest is Laurel Rosenhall. She is the LA Times Sacramento Bureau Chief, who oversees their coverage of the California Capitol, both in state government and state politics. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you, happy to be here. So listen, you know, what do you see as the role of the press in a democratic society? I mean, and also, can you give us some examples of where press reporting has actually changed public perceptions and therefore public policy? Well, I think there's not one answer to what is the role of the press. Um, I think our role is to inform and educate and entertain and create community, um, to speak truth to power, to hold officials accountable. Um, I think our highest and best use is to bring out knowledge that wouldn't have been known if we weren't doing our job. Yeah, so we, you know, we've been talking to leaders of the state watchdog agencies like the LAO, Little Hoover Commission, about their role as government watchdogs. How much do you think their work influences policy? Um, I think they're very influential in the Capitol, particularly the LAO is highly respected as a source of nonpartisan information for lawmakers. Um, but there is a back and forth in the process, obviously, as you know. And so 
um, you know, how much influence they have is always subject to whatever other variables are in play that year with interest groups, with the governor, with how much legislators, you know, want to take that advice versus if they have another agenda of their own. So I don't see any like one particularly powerful angle, but they're obviously in the mix. Yeah, well, certainly the LAO when it comes to the finances and they, the, uh, the LAOs, they like to tell us that we're, we're always closer to the final numbers than the Department of Finance, but, but be that as it may, um, you know, we invited uh, the new state auditor, Grant Parks, to explain the work of their office, but his office declined. Frankly, it seemed a bit ironic, given that their agency conducts investigations into improper government activities, that they were unwilling to share their work with the public. Uh, it should be noted that past, two past state auditors have regularly appeared on our program. Is this something you run into? Um, what are your thoughts when some public servants are reluctant, reluctant to tell the public what they do and why they do it? I don't want to comment on the particular um, individual that you mentioned in your question because I don't know anything about that exchange. But um, I will say that generally speaking, I feel like social media and the ability for officials to communicate directly with people through their own channels, whether it's through social media or their websites or other platforms, have actually really complicated their relationships with the press. They don't in their minds need the press as much as they used to because in their minds they can go straight to the public um, without going through an intermediary. And in some cases that has uh, strengthened the communication and the bond that people feel with public officials and that can be a good thing. But in a lot of ways it reduces the accountability that they have because they don't have to face questions from reporters when they make big announcements. So I think that part of it is just the fallout from technological innovation. Yeah, I mean, I think you make a really good point there, but the, the accountability issue, because you can spin something in the way that, you know, it, it, it makes you look good or makes the situation look better than maybe than it really is. You need that critical, those critical questions that of course they're not gonna ask themselves. Um, let me ask you one other quick question before we end the segment here, and that is private think tanks. So we're gonna get your thoughts on that. You know, some lean a little to the left, some lean a little to the right. There are some that really try to be nonpartisan. Are there any that you would recommend to someone who wants to get an unbiased analysis of state issues? Um, I have found the Public Policy Institute of California to be very reliable over the years. They have research on many issues. They've pulled on the same questions, surveyed on the same questions over many years. And they have experts who are really good at all kinds of important topics, whether it's demographics, crime trends, or other things. So I have found them very reliable. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. The PPIC is, is really excellent. I encourage people to kind of look them up when they're thinking about public policy issues. Uh, very in-depth uh, analysis and, and nonpartisan. Well, I want to thank our guest, LA Times Sacramento Bureau Chief Laura Rosenhall. Up next, what about political columnists? What sources do they rely on? We'll talk to a longtime observer of California government and politics, Cal Matters columnist Dan Walters, next. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, the public's worries over government secrecy are growing. Sometimes government officials actively attempt to shield records from the public. In other instances, government officials simply ignore requests for information. The bottom line, though, is that these actions can make it harder for constituents and journalists to hold government leaders to account. California has long prided itself on transparency, but even in California, some government agencies and politicians are more open than others. Is today's hyperpartisan attack mode of politics making government officials and politicians more guarded? And if, for whatever reason, the public is being stonewalled, what can they, where can they go to find accurate and reliable information about their government? Our guest is Dan Walters. He's a columnist for CalMatters and a longtime Capitol Observer of state government and politics. Welcome back to the Matter Report, Dan. Thank you very much. So it seems that increasingly politicians are reluctant to appear in anything but the most favorable media venues 
where a fawning interviewer asks only softball questions. Is it just me, or has this problem gotten worse over time? Oh, it's gotten much worse over time. Uh, the, for a variety of reasons, the, uh, certainly the up, internal upheavals of the media, the decline of newspapers particularly, uh, the polarization in the larger society uh, has manifested itself in, to a certain degree in polarized uh, media, particularly the broadcast media. Uh, it's 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 really a, a sad state of affairs, and I think it's strikes even in California, as you mentioned, which has a prides itself supposedly on having a lot of sunshine on its government. Uh, yeah. But I've been around this the capital for uh, half a century almost, and I tell you, it, it has tightened down a lot for a variety of reasons. And I think the main one is you. Once upon a time, in the in, back in the day, as the saying goes, you had three elements uh, involved in debating issues in, in Sacramento. You had the Democrats, you had the Republicans, and you had the media. And two of those three have kind of gone down the tube. Uh, the Republicans have no power anymore. The media has, as I mentioned earlier, particularly the, new, the newspapers had just Gone, gone down. I can't say the toilet, but I mean, really gone down. I was looking at some data the other day. At one time, for the Sacramento Bee, had a circulation of two hundred thousand. Now it's scarcely ten percent of that. Yeah, yeah. The Times was a mil well over a million, and they're now a few hundred thousand. I mean, so the Republic back in the day, the Republicans would point out something about their Democrats, and the media would follow up on that, and there would be some correction. Same thing, Democrats saying something about the Republicans. The media would get in and say, this is going here and going there, but there, it's, there's not this interaction. There's not this sense of debate, and so everybody kind of tightens down and you know, goes into the bunker and doesn't really want to engage anymore in public uh, debate. Yeah, I want to ask you a question about, it's not just politicians, it's government agencies as well. I mean, this program was intended to highlight some of the key state watchdog agencies. And much to my surprise, you know, the new state auditor, Grand Parks, declined to participate. But we had a similar experience last year when we wanted to talk to someone at the State Department of Health and Human Services to explain the governor's new care courts proposal. No one was willing to come on and talk about it. Is this something new or has it always been so? And regardless, what, if anything, can, be, can or should be done about it? Well, it is kind of something new. People used to feel an obligation to try to explain the, the public policies they were involved with. Now they don't feel that obligation because, again, there's nobody looking over their shoulder and saying, hey, you've got, you got to fess up. You've got to say what you want, you know, what you're doing. Uh, and so it's, it, it has shut down a lot. Plus, there's been a centralization of media responses, uh, Governors have increasingly centralized uh, media responses within the governor's office, and the agencies are not as free as they once were to deal with media requests. The people who deal with those things in the agencies now are political appointees rather than career civil servants. I mean, all of these things manifest themselves in a kind of a shutting down of uh, discourse over a lot of things. It's it, Yes, it is something that's, it's not say exactly new, but it's certainly something that's evolved over time. Yeah, and it, it seems like, you know, with social media and why we were talking with Laurel Rosenhoff from the LA Times uh, just a, a minute ago, and she was saying that, you know, with social media, the, the politicians um, and bureaucrats can send out their own message 
uh, and connect directly with the public. In some ways good, but in some ways bad, because then they're not open to any kind of criticism or critique. But we rely on you, Dan, to do that. So <laughs> I encourage people to read your column. Um, I always learn something when I, when I read your column, so uh, thanks for doing what you do, um, and thanks for being on the Maddie Report. You're welcome. All right. Oh, with that, um, if you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org and sign up for our free e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily. It covers all state politics that affect the Central Valley. We hope you do that. Uh, this is Mark Kepler for The Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Democracy requires a well-informed electorate, and there's no question that local newspapers have traditionally played that critical role. However, with the emergence of the Internet, coupled with the financial pressures of mergers and acquisitions, Local newspapers are laying off staff, if not closing altogether. Not surprisingly, research has linked closures of newspapers to declines in civic engagement of citizens, increases in government waste, and increases in political polarization. The decline of local news has also been linked to the increased nationalization of local elections. There are some local news outlets that are attempting to fill this void. A local example covering local politics is Fresno Land. We're delighted to have the founder, executive director, and managing editor of Fresno Land with us today, Daniel Bergstrom. Welcome back to the Matterport Valley Views Edition. Thanks for having me, Mark. So first of all, let's. I'm going to do the reporter's questions here. The who, what, when, where, why, and how of Fresno Land. Sure. So I, um, I mean, you know this about me, Mark. I started Fresno Land uh, almost five years ago now, um, and I'm not the person that should be starting a local journalism organization in Fresno. I have an urban planning background. I've spent the last, gosh, how many years have I been working? Almost 15 years of my career working in urban planning. I went to Cornell, got my master's in urban planning, wanted to really focus on the built environment and how development happens and how people can engage in that process. And I held lots of different positions throughout my career in local government. I worked in the mayor's office. I worked at our community foundation. I worked at a think tank. And each place that I worked, what I kept seeing was that people who are most impacted by decisions, whether it's where you put, put affordable housing, um, who gets, which neighborhood gets the new park or the upgrades to the new park, where bike lanes and trails are going, the people who are most impacted this, by those decisions are often the ones not in the room when those decisions are happening and are just so kept out of the loop on how that gets happened. And, and I wanted to solve for that. And so I initially sort of came up with Fresno Land to be this like think tank and we would come up with original policy solutions to a lot of our issues. But I always wanted to bring people back to the center of these conversations. And a friend of mine was like, this is journalism at its core. And mind you, this is like 2018 when journalism has already been majorly disrupted um, and lots of changes happening in the industry. And so I just didn't really see it. But anyways, long story short, we, um, I combined forces with the Fresno Bee and we launched um, what was called the Fresno Land Lab in the Fresno Bee in 2020 and ran that for two years and then went independent last year. And so now we're a fully fledged independent nonprofit newsroom. Um, we have four full-time beat reporters covering uh, housing, development, environment, local government accountability and labor and economic issues. 
Um, we have a slew of student interns from Fresno State on our team. We have a documenters program where we train community members to cover all of the planning commission meetings and the city council meetings in a lot of small cities that otherwise wouldn't get covered at all, um, filling a lot of local news desert gaps. And so we're really filling, I think, a, a gap in our local news infrastructure around just basic information about local government, what its role is, and how we can make sure that decision makers in those bodies are better held accountable. Yeah, there, there are some, listen, the, the Fresno Beast has got some very good reporters. Tim Sheen comes to mind, does, has done outstanding work, but the paper isn't what it used to be by any stretch of the imagination. And so that's, you've filled a very important point. I will, I would tell our listeners that you really need to check out Fresno Land. It is a very, very valuable source of local political information. Um, so uh, I want to ask you, what are some of the recent Fresno stories you've covered that you think have shined a light on what otherwise may have gone unreported or unnoticed? Yeah, absolutely. One of the, my favorites this year was a story or an investigation that we published initially in August and have been following it up as it's broken out. But um, our local government accountability reporter, his name is Omar Rashad, and he did a story that investigated the Fresno City Council's abuse, our perceived abuse of the Brown Act. Um, you know, Fresno, City of Fresno has almost a $2 billion budget. Um, they have public hearings on the budget process. They do, you know, a decent amount of community engagement on their budget process. But when it comes time to doing the last minute deals where anyone who's inside and privy to these conversations knows, everything happens in the 11th hour, all of the horse trading and those conversations, which are sort of housed in the city council's budget subcommittee have been entirely private. Fresno is the only city of the largest 10 cities in California who has their city council budget subcommittee hearings in private behind closed doors, not subject to the Brown Act. Um, we, our story basically interviewed several legal experts who said, this is weird. This is not normal. This is atypical. And so um, that story has just continued to buffed open what we have sort of seen as the secretive process of managing budget at City Hall. Um, and so that's been a fun one to cover. The other story that I would just love to point out. Well, can I just jump in here for a second? And one sure. thing I would say, because I do a lot of work in you know, in mediation stuff, and you know, sometimes you want to negotiate in private because you can let your hair down and be very blunt with people. If you negotiate in public, people have a tendency just to take positions and stances and not be serious. Um, does that have any validity? I mean, sure. But again, I, as a journalist, let's have that conversation in public, right? Like, let's have the conversation. Everything's on the record. <laughs> Everything is even though I started Fresno Land because I used to be that person behind closed doors. And I saw a lot of these decisions happening. And I thought if people knew, if people knew what was actually driving the conversation, who was actually having influence in these discussions, they would have a really different percep perception of how to view things. And so I get what you're saying, but I think the public deserves to know what's happening. Fair enough. Um, so let me ask you this. Um, I want to make sure we get this in here about, you know, you're a struggling nonprofit, like most nonprofits are, I suppose. But how how can people support Fresno Land? Yeah, uh, two ways. Uh, first, subscribe to our newsletter. Uh, we know the Maddie Daily is an excellent daily newsletter, and we do a recap of weekly events um, through our newsletter. Subscribe at FresnoLand.org/newsletter and donate to us. We are in the middle of a campaign called Newsmatch. You may have seen it if you read the New York Times. There was a big story about it. Um, all of our contributions through the end of the year are tripled thanks to national funders and local funders. Um, and so any dollar counts to us. It all helps us build 
um, the next the next sort of generation of local news, you can go to our site at fresnoland.org slash donate. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really important to know what's going on in local politics. I mean, there are some people among us, like my wife, for example, will listen to uh, school board meetings uh, online. You know, that that takes a special person, I think. Most people need to rely on, on, on your folks to give that information. I really want to thank our guest, Daniel Bergstrom from Fresno Land. Up next, what is the most important or one of the most important valley issues? Many would say a life begins and ends with water, a conversation with a valley news outlet dedicated to everything water. Now, we've dealt with many public policy issues on this program, and I can honestly say that water is one of the most complex issues to cover. Most people can't tell you where water where their water comes from, and they have no idea um, how new regulations may affect their towns, their jobs, or even the ability to keep their lawns green. SJV Water is an independent nonprofit news site dedicated to covering water in the San Joaquin Valley. It views its job as explaining Valley water issues in an engaging, understandable way, and I can attest to the fact that they do. We're delighted to have the executive managing editor of SJV Water with us today, Lois Henry. Uh, welcome back to the Maddie Report Valley Views Edition. Hi, thank you for having me. So, so Lois, um, can you give us kind of the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of SJV Water? So um, I've been a journalist in the Valley, starting in Fresno and then uh, working at the Bakersfield, Californian for more than 30 years. And I uh, left in 2017. Oh, journalism kind of left me. <laughs> Legacy newspaper journalism is, is, having, is facing you know, massive difficulties anyway. And I had this idea of starting... Um, a website dedicated to a specific topic. And I had been covering a lot of issues having to do with water while I was at the Californian. So in 2019, finally, I launched uh, SJV Water as a nonprofit um, independent news organization. And um, it started with just me. And so I did only focus on one topic, which was water. <laughs> and I didn't think it was gonna be quite as busy to cover water throughout the Valley, but it has been, uh, it has just been nonstop. It's, um, you know, of course, I launched in 2019, 2020 was the pandemic, and also, you know, another multi-year epic drought um, that came on the heels of the 2012-2016 multi-year epic drought. Um, and, and in between that time, the legislature had passed the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which has changed and will change. I don't think people understand how much it will change the economics of this valley. Well, you see you know, people talking about taking upwards of, of a million acres of uh, productive farmland out of, out of production. I mean, it's going to have a dramatic effect. Uh, on, on everybody, on, on tax dollars coming in to, you know, keep roads clean and open, on uh, ancillary businesses of, um, you know, transporting and, and moving uh, produce as well as, you know, bringing in fertilizers as well as manufacturing as well. I mean, it's just... You know, the, um, I think that the spinoff uh, companies factor for agriculture is like one of the highest when you look at different companies. All like the peripheral companies. industries that support right. agriculture. So they're all going to be affected. And you think about the towns that rely on the tax base, what's going to happen to their police and fire departments, their libraries. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty profound. What's going to happen to the low-income workers who right. have oftentimes uh, year-round, uh, if not, and, and of course, then we have, you know, massive seasonal workers. What's going to happen to all those people? Well, um, and it's it's going to be a significant issue. So Sigma Sustainable Groundwater Management Act became so, nobody understood it. It was very difficult. Farmers were contacting us 
asking me, you know, what's happening because they weren't getting good, easy to understand information um, out of uh, water districts. So, uh, and then of course, we flipped in 2022 at the end of 22 from massive, incredible drought to incredible flooding. And that was even more um, significant to cover. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 it seems never ending, and I do I do really mean it. it water is one of the hardest issues to cover because, frankly, you can't get good information. It's hard to get good information because each side kind of whoever whatever the agenda is, they kind of spin the numbers. That's one thing that one of the reasons why I like your your publication or your website so so much. It's it's just so fact based and so you can rely on it. It's so accurate. Um, let me ask you. Uh, we only got about about a minute or so left in the program. And I do want to ask you how people can support SJV Water. But before that, any other big, Sigma obviously has been a huge story. Any other huge stories? I mean, Tulare Lake. I mean, what are the other really big stories that you've been covering? Well, I think that um, a lot of the flood issue uh, kind of gets um, ignored. It, it, the problem is that we don't have flood uh, response organization here in the valley, south of, especially south of Fresno and, and in parts of Merced, actually, too. There's no there's no policies and procedures. There's no infrastructure. And I, by that, I don't necessarily mean, you know, weirs and, and stuff like that. I mean, the policy of infrastructure, how one government ent entity hands off and deals with a disaster to the next government entity, you know, because creeks and rivers run through all that. So that's, I think, is going to be another big, huge issue that needs to be addressed. Um, so we don't see the kind of wild flooding and of towns and communities and um, dairies and farms that we saw this last time. That was not necessarily just a function of too much water, although we had a crap ton of water. It was also a function of no policies, procedures, handoffs, MOUs, all that boring stuff. It means well, me, before, we don't have a few seconds, left, but I do want to get in. How can people support SJV oh, water? Sorry, sorry I, I get talking about water. It's sjvwater.org. You just go to sjvwater.org. I've got donate buttons all over the place. And by the way, if you can put me in touch with a large funder, <laughs> you know, so a anybody large out there who wants to fund funder, a really good public be. policy product that's really important to the valley, here's your place to go. Uh, SJV water. I want to thank Lois Henry with SJV water for joining us. Up next, the past meets the future. We talked to Jim Bourne the former longtime executive editor of the Fresno Bee and current executive director of the Institute for Media and the Public Trust at Fresno State. Welcome back. Our next guest is a rarity in the media industry. He's received plaudits from both sides of the aisle. Former Democratic Governor Jerry Brown said, quote, he embodies the spirit of Fresno and chronicles its many stories with verb, candor, and insight, unquote. Former California Republican Governor Pete Wilson said that he has been a chronicler and a conscience of uh, Fresno and the Central Valley, always speaking from, quote, deep knowledge and principle, unquote. But we're talking about Jim Boren, the former longtime editor uh, of the Fresno Bee and current executive uh, director of the Institute for Media and Public Trust at Fresno State. Welcome to the Matterport Valley Views Edition, Jim. Yeah, thank you for having me. So listen, you've spent more than half a century in and around news business in Fresno and the Valley. How would you evaluate the current state of coverage of local government? Has it gotten better, worse, or stayed about the same? Yeah, the evaluation of the current state of local news coverage uh, depends on, on many factors. Um, you know, uh, the rise of digital media, declining revenues for traditional news outlets, and that whole change dynamics of public engagement, which is one of the big issues. Um, these factors contribute to both positive and negative impacts. So, um, you know, you have the digital platforms that allowed more 
uh, people and more voices, more diverse voices to enter the conversation, leading to more representation of various segments of our community. Um, on the other hand, the decline, decline in, in traditional uh, local newspapers and news outlets has led to reduction in resources for investigative journalism, resulting in fewer journalists dedicating to covering local politics and local government. And that's a real problem. You know, I want to ask you about that. Um, you know, the public has traditionally relied on local journalists to act as a watchdog for local government. So what do you see as the biggest challenges and biggest opportunities in, in increasing local government uh, transparency? Well, there's just not enough journalists watching local politicians and local governments. Um, not every government agency uh, is being covered now. Um, and, and, you know, it used to be in the, in, you know, the old days back when I first started is that you, we never let a public agency uh, meet without having a reporter there because we were worried that they would do something or the public wouldn't know. So we were, we were the eyes and the ears um, of the public. Now, um, it takes a major event on the agenda for some for resource uh, for a reporter to be there because they're just the news outlets don't have that many journalists available and we've got many government agencies more now than ever. Let, let, let me let me let me go follow up question with that. What about online? Just putting all the hearings online so people citizens can access them themselves. Yeah, and online is great, and I know that um, a lot of my my students in our advanced reporting class here at Fresno State that I that I teach um, watch government meetings online but very there very few people actually do they still need the reporters to come and give value to to that by by condensing it and, and finding what the news is and asking good tough questions well they also have an institutional memory right I mean they know what happened before and, and so they can put it in context you know my, my wife I think is an education nerd she, she likes to listen to the Clovis Unified school district uh, meetings. I, I don't think that's a very common thing uh, among most parents, yeah, frankly. Not at all. And pe people are busy. And the, and, the, that, and that's why newspapers in the, you know, originally existed is, is that they took and boiled down those meetings and, 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 and they would watch the entire meeting, but just give them the, the, the news in, in, a, in, in short segments. And, uh, and that gave great value to what newspapers and and uh, TV and radio stations did in, in the old days. I mean, radio um, and, and TV also covered um, uh, these these uh, government meetings. Now uh, they're 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 mostly going uncovered. It, it's yeah, and, and the coverage is. I mean, they only have like maybe thirty seconds or something to to explain what's going on, which is really not enough time. Right. Let, me, let me ask you about this though. Um, social media. It seems to be like that's a petri dish of misinformation. You know, Fresno State's Institute for Media and Public Trust has a mission to quote, promote news literacy and identify fake news, unquote. So given the tsunami of misinformation that we seem to be bombarded with, how does one discern truth from lies? Uh, can you give us some tips on how to best spot false content on the internet? Well, we we have actually eight tips on our on our website and we would refer um, uh, your, your listeners to that. But um, basically you wanna be able to fact check that information by going to fact checking sites. There's many of them uh, around. So fact check and, and verification. Um, you you wanna check the websites to see if they're legitimate. You wanna read the other kinds of material on a particular website to make sure that it's not just a website that's promoting some particular uh, political point of view or some um, other, other area. You want to um, <clears throat> make sure that you go to multiple um, 
uh, news sites to 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 cross check your information. Um, you you want to promote uh, um, accountability in the kind of information that you're uh, looking at by by looking across at, at many news sites. You want to you know, diversify your perspectives. I don't know if you, if you heard about this study, but I, I read some about a study that Stanford did with their students. Uh, what they did was they give, gave the students two websites to look at um, and gave them like 15 minutes and then they asked them some questions afterwards. And they asked them, you know, the, the credibility of the two websites. They over 50% rated the two websites with similar cred credibility. The problem was that one of the websites was from a professional, you know, reputable organization. The other was the neo-Nazi website. And they didn't drill down enough to discern whether or not one was credible and one wasn't. So I think that really speaks to the problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, again, it's that it's not taking the kind of time that it takes to verify information. When I give my students these eight tips to verify um, uh, content on the Internet, they says, well, that, just, that takes a lot of work. And I said, yeah, it does. And we all are busy and we're not going to check everything out. So we assume a lot of things. And, and you know, when we make assumptions, we we cause problems for ourselves. Yes, there is there is something about things. Most people know what the whole thing around uh, if we assume. Uh, so we'll leave it at that. Um, since this is a family program. Uh, let me ask you this. Your institute also has the goal of, quote, bridging the trust gap between news consumers and the media, unquote. So how do you do that in the current environment where people seem to reject news that doesn't agree with their worldview? Um, yeah, exactly. That, that old thing they call that confirmation bias that uh, um, you, you look for information that, that, that reflects your worldview. Um, <clears throat> we emphasize fact-checking and verification of news, as we talked about earlier. We, we want to promote transparency and accountability uh, in the kind of information that, that people digest. And we, we encourage everyone to, to go to a, a, a many different websites to get many different um, views. We want to engage in community outreach and education on how to access public information. We want to make sure that people are using nonpartisan language that frames issues in, in a way that doesn't, doesn't uh, show some particular bias. And we just want to have a conversation, you know, across um, the way. I know, you know, that that is difficult because people are locked into their positions. But I have had a lot of conversations recently with people that are on uh, uh, 180 degrees uh, difference in, in, in some issues that I believe in. And that we can have a good, solid conversation if we take the time and say, look, I understand where you're coming from, that this is what I believe and these are the facts. And, you know, um, don't try to choose uh, facts that support your point of view, but choose choose facts that are that are, are, are common out there and that uh, and that that people recognize. Too often we spend time um, looking for information that verifies what we believe in and not look for all the information that represents um, um, the whole point of view. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like um, I always look at articles and I look for adjectives and adverbs. Um, and if they've got too many of those in there, then like, like I'm a little suspicious <laughs> about where they're coming from. Um, but it's actually, it's, it's the bottom line is I think what you're saying is being a citizen, it takes some work. Yeah. It's not just frankly, you know, raising the flag or, you know, it, it's more than that. Being a good citizen means being informed. The democracy is based on an informed electorate. And so you have a responsibility 
to do some drilling down and making sure you're getting accurate information. Um, and that just seems to be kind of a, obviously a cornerstone of democracy that we seem to have drifted a little from, um, and hopefully we can get back to. Um, so let me ask you this, you know, you're the executive director of the Institute for Media and Public Trust at Fresno State, which means you're seeing the future of the fourth estate. You're, you're seeing what, what journalism is going to be in the next generation. What do you yeah. see? What do you see? Well, I mean, we, we're, we're in this whole digital transformation. We've got all sorts of um, access to information, probably access to too much information because we can't, we can't uh, evaluate all of it. We have now, it's been complicated by AI, um, you know, artificial intelligence and, and, and that's ha happening. So um, the future of journalism is, is, is going to be shaped, shaped by these um, technological advancements, changing consumer preferences and involving uh, business models. We've got to find a way to put all that together to get good, solid information. You know, it kind of reminds me of if I'm doing this right. Alan Toffler with Future Shock. You know, that, that thing goes faster and faster and faster. Um, and it just seems like we're living in that age with social media. But how do you see the younger generation? I mean, you know, are, are they engaged or are more or less engaged or, or what? They're very engaged. They're, but they're not necessarily engaged in, in, in news sites. I asked them to, 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 to look at a lot of news sites, such as um, uh, local, uh, national, international news sites, BBC, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Fresno Bee, ABC 30, those kinds of news sites uh, across the board. Um, and I will put KMJ in there as well. And KMJ, uh, yes, of course, and KMPH. And, um, you know, the, so they're looking at, at all sorts of news sites, but they're they're actually looking at TikTok and, uh, and social yeah. media as opposed to news sites. So we complain about them, uh, you know, the various shades of news sites, and they're, they're looking at TikTok. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, I want to thank Jim Bourne, the former executive editor of the Fresno Bee and current executive director of the Institute for Media and Public Trust at Fresno State for joining us. And thank you for your service, Jim, after all these years. Um, if you want to stay up to date with state and local politics, you can sign up for our e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily, by just logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Report Valley Views Edition. Thanks for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.